0: Today's guest is Timothy Johnson. Timothy is the president and chief executive officer of the United Way of the Blue Grass, where he leads a century-old philanthropic organization charged with impacting the people of central Kentucky. Timothy is a philanthropist who is dedicated to eradicating poverty and promoting equity and diversity. His passion is to improve conditions in low-income communities, and he believes that with the appropriate tools, people can achieve their full potential and thrive. Timothy is a recipient of the 2019 Washington Business Journal's Minority Business Leaders Award, and he is an active and financial member of Leadership Prince George's, Leadership Greater Washington, and Leadership Lexington. He currently lives in Lexington, Kentucky, with his lovely wife, Opa. And he is a proud Prince Hall Freemason, a Shriner, and a Platinum Life member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. (laughs) Welcome, Timothy.
1: Thank you, Dr. Jackie. Thank you, Dr. Theo, for having me. Of course, of
2: course. I'm really excited to have you on the show today, especially because I think the last time we saw each other in person, we were both living in New York, and now we're both not living in New York. I'm here in California. (laughs) You're in Kentucky,
1: and sometimes I wonder, how
2: how do we end up in these places?
1: I ask myself that all the time, but clearly uh, the creator had other other designs for us.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I think that what's interesting is that when we were in New York together, you know, I was a much younger professional, and when you're looking to your left and your right, figuring out what other people do, you don't quite know You know, when you're a young member in an organization like Five Beta Sigma, it's like, what does that brother do? I'm not sure. He looks just so impressed most of the time that I see him. Right. And so it's really amazing to see that, that you've taken the talents to Kentucky. You know, it's amazing that you're a CEO of an organization as, as widely known as United Way. So I'm just happy to see where you are and excited to, to talk to you about what that pathway was like. So. Let's hop into it. Yeah. So let's first start off with with your educational path, right? Right now you're you're the CEO of a major organization. Where did you start? How did you begin this path? What sparked your interest in philanthropy, giving back, and uh, making this a career?
1: It's funny enough. I I often tell folks that my path where I started out, uh, I could not foresee where I'm currently working in my In my mission 20 some odd years ago, it was sort of an accidental career of sorts because I started out my earliest pursuits in a much different field, wanting to actually be a doctor. I went to school at North Carolina Central University, historically black college university down in Durham, N.C. It's even interesting how I got there. My best friend of now 30 plus years had an opportunity to go on a college tour. I did not. At the time, I've known him since second grade, so I sort of use the 17 year old's judgment of, hey, you like it? It's good enough for you? It's good enough for me. I'll go with you, sight unseen. Have never been in North Carolina before. How bad could it be? You know, we both were biology pre med majors, wanting to be doctors and wanting to save people and help the community. And along that line, obviously, some things might have changed for me. After I graduated, I went back home to New York City and I was working on my MCAT scores. I had a friend of mine who worked for city government in New York and said, hey, I could get you a job working in city government. I know you're taking this expensive Kaplan course. You're going to need some money in your pocket to pay for it. And I took a job working with the New York City Department of Employment. And it was an organization at the time where I worked in youth development programs, working very closely with nonprofits, helping young people around summer youth, around acquiring skills, internships, and things of that sort. Uh, still working with the idea that this is going to be a, a stopover job. And I was intellectually curious, and I was computer literate, two things that were in short stead at that particular moment. So I actually got moved around the agency a lot. People literally in departments were stealing me from one another, wanting me to sort of like work in their departments. And I had gotten some advice early on from someone who I didn't recognize as a mentor, but now I look back on it, and they very much mentored me. To let me know. Don't be a specialist in just one thing. Make yourself indispensable. So learn as much about everything as you can. If that one thing disappears, you're not without a job. And that's what I did. I learned everything that I could get in front of. And uh, that served me well. And I, I looked up one morning or one day, and I had been at this organization the, in city government for 11 years. And I was 29. I was like, how the heck did this happen? Uh-huh. Stop over job a year max. Now i spent a third of my life doing something that's very different than medicine. So I had a decision to make. Before I turned 30, do I want to go back to college in a very high-pressure, stressful sort of uh, track, or do I want to take the skills I've learned over the last 11 years and see if there's a career somewhere in there that I can fashion? And I had a consultant who worked with me in the city who also worked for a nonprofit, the United Way of New York City. And she said, hey, you know, there's another client of mine who just got $14 million from the city council to put together a workforce development program. They've never done workforce before. And at the time, I worked in workforce development. And she said, well, you know, would you consider going over there and talking to them? And I was like, well, I'd heard of United Way. I wasn't really sure what they did, but I hadn't interviewed in 11 years. So I'll use them as practice and figure out what I want to do with my life. And I went over to United Way of New York City, you know, had a conversation with them with the intention of just sort of practicing my interviewing skills, and but really fell in love with the mission of the organization and the types of folks who worked there, and I went to work at the United Way of New York City, and now four United Ways later and uh, fourteen years later in the United Way network, and now I find myself uh, with the the honorable and the enviable uh, role of being able to lead one of these organizations so a along that pathway, while I still worked at the United Way of New York City, I decided, okay, I've been out of undergrad now about ten years. I think I need to go back to school to grad school because From what I saw in the workforce, master's degrees were valued. Really wasn't about what the master's degree was in, but really that you were able to have some critical thinking, you were exposed to a different type of way of researching. And in at least in my organization and known people working in nonprofit organizations and leadership, I saw that a commonality was they either had master's degrees or higher degrees. So I went back to school at Milano, the new school for management and urban policy. And I got a master's of science degree in nonprofit management. And from there, I left city government, went on to United Way of New York City. After United Way of New York City, this was around 2008 when the economy started swirling around the toilet. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to leave and go on to another small nonprofit, very wealthy, but very small nonprofit in New York City called the Robin Hood Foundation. Because I had an opportunity to be a program officer, and they were next to no black people at all in this organization. So I thought, that would it be great to be at the table making decisions of an organization with a $200 million budget around poverty? And uh, worked at Robin Hood for 15 months, uh, decided that although it was a great organization, it took me far away from actually seeing the people who I was helping and working and decided that, you know what, I have a master's degree now, newly minted. I have all this great experience. I will leave and find another job. This is around 2009. The economy hadn't yet rebounded yet. And I found myself, I left Robin Hood and found myself unemployed for 27 months. And it was probably the most challenging time of my life. Doubted myself. You know, I was wondering what's wrong with me. Why can't I find a job as though it was just happening to myself? And had some great people to help me get through that rough moment. And then that led me to my next United Wave in Philly. I won't take you through the, the painful details of that, but that was where opportunities opened up for me again, uh, working in Philadelphia again for that United Way that served, it was my first United Way that was more than just a city. It allowed me to figure out how to execute United Way's work in counties, both rural, urban, and suburban. It also included a multi-state United Way because it was United Way of Greater Philly and Southern New Jersey. So it allowed me to see how do I do our work across uh, these political boundaries. And it put me in the right position to have an opportunity at United Way of the National Capital Area in D.C., which is really where my career uh, skyrocketed. So no extremely long answer to your question, but I wanted to give you that context.
2: Yeah, I had a a couple of thoughts just off the top. One around master's degrees and their use. I think uh, what you said is really critical in that oftentimes, especially for students that are going straight from undergrad to a master's degree program, they're confused. It's like, I don't understand what's going on here. And I always tell them, you know, your undergrad is about your grade. You know, your master's degree is about your thoughts and your application, right, and making use of what you learn, right? And so I think that that's really critical to understand. Um, I think additional context might be helpful for, for those folks that are listening just to talk a little bit about what United Way is, and like, what is this mission? I know that I've heard of United Way before, but I, I'm not
1: sure exactly what they do, right? So sure, tell We're them, not alone. But United <laughs> Way does. Give them a plug. Sure. We got to do a better job at telling our story because I, I hear that far too often. So United Way, and we are a collectively 139-year-old network of organizations. Uh, we're all autonomous. So even though we have United Ways around the country, around the world, We're all autonomous in our operation. We all have our own boards, our own uh, hierarchy, but we share within a network, and we see each other almost as sister institutions. So United Way's mission is to fight for the education, the financial stability, and the health of every person in the community. And each United Way has the mission of taking those three big bucket areas, because education is a lot of things that fall under that. Same thing with health. And financial stability is really the financial capability services each United Way figures out what that means for themselves. So when I worked in Philly, health was helping our elderly age in place. When I worked in D.C., health was around active play and nutrition for our young people, particularly our middle schoolers. Here, our health is more so around basic needs, around mental health, physical health, things of that sort. So what United Way does, and for a number of years, we used to be the organization that you gave money to through your payroll deduction, and we gave money to other nonprofits. And that was our model for about a 100 years. The last 20 to 25 to 30 years or so, our model has really evolved to that of community impact. So it's no longer just enough to give money to organizations. It's how do you look at what are the most pressing issues in your particular geography, figure out the organizations that are doing impactful, critical work, And United Way leverages its own intellectual capital, our relationships, our resources to come up with solutions to those pressing issues. And then uh, collectively, how do we get all these partners to row their oars in the same direction towards the same goal? That way we can get there better, quicker, faster, more impactful. And that's really sort of the synopsis of how United Way does its work around uh, the country, around the world. Awesome. I
2: going to let Jackie jump in here uh, with a couple of questions as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, thank you for explaining that. I just always knew that when I saw United Way it was time to break open the pocketbook because they do good <laughs> to the community, but I didn't actually sure want you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what was actually going on. But yeah, it's good to hear that it's such a dynamic organization that will allow for each organization within the network to determine what that community needs. I think Absolutely. that's That's such an excellent model. I didn't know that. All right. I am curious about what it's like to have such an important job and what it's like to do that job in a place that's rural like Kentucky.
1: Sure. And and I'll layer on the fact that there's about 1800 United Ways around the world, about 1400 United Ways in America. And I'm one of 42 black CEOs in the United Way Network. So, You know, there's an extra bit of of pressure there. Yeah. I love my job as president. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, It's It's fine. fine. Yeah. (laughs) I love my job as president and CEO. I get to lead, as as you said, uh, Dr. Jackie, a century-old regional philanthropic organization that covers 10 counties around central Kentucky. We have a $4 million annual budget with about 32 professional staff. We're the second largest United Way in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And uh, our work is of strategic importance to the larger network around the state. There's 21 United Ways just in Kentucky alone with about $42 million worth of impact that we're responsible for. So uh, my job is really to provide vision, provide leadership. I raise funds for our mission, and I deliver high-quality impact for communities across uh, the central Kentucky area. The way I like to describe my work is I get to serve as the chief evangelist know, United Way's work. So it's my job to go out and talk about the work in a very motivating way. I get to empower, motivate my staff, the community, our partners, our donors, and really to help elevate this organization to the status of being the philanthropic partner of choice by making sure that we deliver outstanding customer service, meaningful impact to our communities, raising the funds and using them in a way that we show ourselves to be good stewards of our donor dollars. And really, I have the sort of, Extra responsibility as a one of the few Black CEOs I've described is really helping to bring up the folks behind me who may have aspirations for leadership in a way that maybe that pathway wasn't as clear for me coming through the network. So I feel like I have that extra unwritten responsibility of really helping those who want to one day lead.
2: And speaking of things that are unwritten, do do you think that that rope that you hand down to folks do you think that should be more written? In
1: places, I feel like some leaders leaders don't. I do. And this is a critique that we have given the network. And the network realizes it needs to do a better job. And I think that while I would have loved for it to have happened many, many years sooner since it's such an old organization, it has owned up to the fact that it hasn't done a great job. And they're trying to create intentional pathways to help folks who are high-performing, who want to uh, be in leadership and have those opportunities. But I absolutely believe that it should be codified and it should be very clear. You shouldn't be left to your own devices and trying to figure out how to do that. Now, I think we all have our own responsibilities as any professionals to grind and to find those mentors and to do our part. But the path forward shouldn't be invisible to us. It shouldn't be as hard as sometimes it is.
0: So I'm really interested in your experience doing your job. and. I'm thinking about the mentality that you had to develop to be able to perform as an executive director and CEO. So, can you tell us how you would describe an executive leader's mentality?
1: Sure. So, you have to have executive presence, which is simply a way of uh, describing when you're in the room, you need to make sure that even sometimes where you may not feel as confident. And we all go through that, where there's moments that we may not feel as confident as some of the others in the room. You have to make sure that you are representing yourself well and your presence is felt by making sure that you're very thoughtful, that you are heard and not just some people talk for the sake of talking, but when you have something to add that you are not afraid to raise your hand and to really speak up and to remind yourself what you bring to the table and not be reticent of really sharing that with the folks around the room. The only way that we're going to have these seats at the table sometimes is making sure that uh, when we're in the room, that we make our ways to the table and make sure that people know that we have something to share and that we have something to contribute to the conversation. So, you know, having executive presence is important. I think being connected to the people, something that I personally bring to this job that I don't see in some other organizations that I spend a lot of my time in out the office You know, I always say the community impact and the work of the United Way is not going to happen behind my desk. So probably this week alone, I've spent uh, time in six of my 10 counties out meeting folks, talking to individuals, understanding what the needs are on the street. As we hopefully are arriving towards the end of the pandemic, what are the new needs that I need to be aware of as a funder and a philanthropist? Being out and really building those relationships, it really requires somebody who Is not afraid to build relationships. Now, secret is I'm actually an introvert, but I play an extrovert at work. So it's extremely exhausting for me to do this, but my job requires it. I can't be a wallflower. I can't hide in my office. So I have to be out finding that next person who's going to help put my organization in the proper position to be able to do more impact around the region. So you have to have a personality that lends itself to being out there, meeting folks. Talking unapologetically about the the great work that your organization does, you know you need to be well read, stay up on trends, what's happening. That means reading papers, reading books, watching news, and even that can be nowadays a, a double edged sword because too much news will dull your brain. So I've actually stayed a little bit further away from news than I used to, but just really making sure that you have a good read on what's happening in the field. Talking to people. Once upon a time, we'd go to conferences. I haven't done that in a little while, but. It still does not stop you from connecting to folks who are like-minded in the field to find out what's happening in your shop and what can I take from what you have experienced and bring back, synthesize, and replicate it here.
0: All right, let's take a break.
2: Zora Nell Hurston said, those that don't got it can't show it. Those that got it can't hide it.
0: Show that you got it with the merch we have in the Black Social Capital store. We've got statement tees, totes, and even a journal. I like to rock my scholar practitioner tea with the blazer. Visit our store at staymotivatedandrisetogether.com slash shop. All right, we're back.
2: I have a question. Since you brought up the fact that you're an introvert, what are some techniques or tools or, or things that you do to make sure that you're being extroverted when you need to be? I know that a lot of folks have, a tough time finding a balance between being their authentic self, which is like, I, I don't need the shine. I don't need to be in front of the podium. I, you know, I don't even want to be on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so what are some of the things that you've learned over the years that helped to find that balance?
1: I have to constantly, consciously tell myself to speak up when it's sort of my natural place to just sort of, I just mm-hmm. want to. Sit back and be thoughtful. I want to hear it, take it all in, synthesize it at my pace, which maybe right now it might be later. And I can't do that, though. And I had a boss at my previous United Way who I owe a lot of a lot of my success to. She was one of the best bosses I've ever had. She told me my first year. So I came to that organization as a senior director. My VP left my sixth week on the job. Then I find myself acting VP of a new organization in a new city, Washington, D.C., in a new region. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So within my first year, she sat me down and she was like, Timothy, I know that you have great thoughts. We talk all the time. I know that you're very sort of introspective, but you also have great input. But sometimes when you're in the room or in meetings, you know, people can overlook that you're there because you're not speaking. And when I know you have something to add, and I need you as sometimes being the only black professional, black leader in the room, Sometimes, though you may be a VP and you're not like the most senior person in the room, don't let that intimidate you. I need you to speak up. I need you to consciously do that. And I've always remembered that advice that she gave me. And even now, I can be in a room of leaders. Leaders always have to be seen or does not always have to be heard. But when I have something that needs to be said, you know, I tell myself now's the time to speak up. You need to add this point. You may feel like, OK, maybe it's not so important, but you never know how that's going to change someone else's perspective or they may be listening to what you're going to add. So it's work, but I have to constantly tell myself, you know, now's not the time to lay back when I get home and I'm exhausted and I want to just sit on the couch and read a book. And my wife is an introvert, so she understands me quite well because she's probably on another couch reading another book. You know, that's my time to fall back. But while I'm out, I have to be engaging because one, my job requires it in order for us to be successful. Two, i I'm it's not lost to me that I am a one, a few black CEOs in a network and where I live now, you do not see black men in the positions I'm in very often throughout this region of the country. So I have a responsibility and I have a job to do and I can't do that by sort of laying back and being in my comfort zone.
0: Yeah. yeah. I just want to like recap a few things because I was just, Theo jumped in and asked the question, But when you answered the question about the executive leader's mentality and went over like how to have an executive presence, like I hope the listeners are really paying attention to the fact that Timothy is in here, not just giving you like buzzwords, like he gave examples. He said, this is what you need to do to make sure that your presence is felt in the room, that you're speaking up, you're saying the things. And he just told us, how to push through as introverts, and I swear, as an introvert, I need to hear that as often as possible. I love to just process and take it all in, and but when I have something to say, I'm ready for everybody to hear it. <laughs> I know that's right. Listen. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for all of those gems. It's gonna be hard to get the audiogram. This, Look, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do it though.
2: Yeah, I, I had another question actually. You know, you're talking about the different regions of United Way. And one of the things that I was really curious about, since you're from Brooklyn, but now you're in Kentucky. That's what, I do
1: or die, baby.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the differences that you've seen between like rural, rural organizations and or rural communities? Some of the challenges they might face versus, you know, urban settings. But I feel like, at least from my perspective, living in a big city, I've lived in L.A., I've lived in the Chicago area, I've lived in New York, right? So it's always been urban this and urban that, right? But I, I don't have a good pinpoint on what the rural perspective is. So I wanted to see what your perspective on some of those differences
1: might be. Sure. I would say the biggest difference, and this is whether we're talking about rural parts of Kentucky, rural parts of coming with a PA where I lived, Rural parts of the Commonwealth of Virginia where I lived. It's funny. I've lived in three of the four commonwealths. I'm not going to Massachusetts though. One of the biggest difference is transportation. That's a huge difference. Something that is taking me a long time to wrap my mind around. Even when I think things are inconvenient to get to in a New York or a Philly, there isn't that connectivity of of transportation, public transportation. If you don't own a car, quite frankly, there's quite a few counties and cities where there's no public transportation. So if you don't have a car, you're walking or you're not getting there. And everyone, obviously, we know can't afford a car, can't afford the upkeep for a car. So that is a real struggle. Being able to get to where services are are difficult, So, which is why one of the things that we're doing here at Our United Way is figuring out how do we do more place-based initiatives in communities to help break down that barrier of transportation. That's probably a huge difference. I found that sometimes educational attainment is another sort of difference. Now, that's not Absolute, because there's challenges with educational attainment within cities. But that's also something else that I've observed, especially when you're in more agrarian, rural counties or or cities. But at the same time, there's a lot of commonalities to the the root causes of poverty. I think everyone feels like their county, their city, their area is so much different than every place else. And I believe that there's much more in common than there are different. As I traveled around and worked around America, I have found so many communities that remind me of the bedsties of the world, places where folks want to do well, they want to succeed, they want to not just survive, they want to thrive, but they lack some of the tools in their toolkit. They lack some of the the access to services that will help provide them with the leg up for them to be able to thrive. So I think despite whether you're in a, a rural, a suburban or an urban setting, I find as part of my job is to, how do I identify those communities and provide them with resources, whether it's dollars, whether it's intellectual capital, relationships and opportunities, so we can find the future Dr. Theos, Dr. Jackie's, the future Timothy's and give them that opportunity to, to succeed because every community have, if not for people who have poured into me, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I went to a school in Brooklyn, Temerjee Tilden High School, my freshman class, our population of the high school is 4,000. My population for my freshman class, it was 2,000 of us. My graduating class was 412. And it, didn't, it dawned on me many, many years later, looking back on there, like, man, I had every opportunity to be one of those almost 1,600 that did not make it. Literally, it's one of those situations where you beat the odds. So, but it wasn't just me alone. I worked hard, but I had people who were constantly giving me good advice, who were pouring into me, encouraging me to stay on the path. So that's my job now to really be that person to help provide those resources and that encouragement and be that uh, that evangelist for the work of United Way and really helping build up our communities.
0: So I just want to tell a story that kind of touches on a lot of what you just said. So I worked at a for-profit college for a few years, and there was this one student who would call every day and ask his academic advisor for help with his assignments. And you know academic advisors are not supposed to help you with your assignments. But he would call every day, like relentlessly, right? And after a while, she was like, because he would basically break her down every day. And she would like go through the assignment and be like, now you do this, right? And write a paragraph about that, right? So and then it would also be like, okay, read your articles and then call me back. And we'll talk about it. Like she was full out tutoring him. So eventually it came out that he didn't have a computer. he had to go to the library. And like you just said, his town, I guess, didn't have the public transportation because he had to walk five miles to get to that library. And that blew us away because we were in, you know, Los Angeles thinking like, what do you mean you walk in five miles? Like catch an Uber, catch a bus, right? Like how is this happening? Like you don't have to have a car. Somebody should be able to take you. But just listening to your story, I think about one, I did not know that that was that common in this country, that people did not have access to public transportation. I, I knew it was bad in some places. It never dawned on me that it didn't exist. And I really thought he was an anomaly. But then I think about what, ooh, what a organization like United Way could have done for someone who was so motivated, right, to get his education. And it. it But the for-profit college I worked for really did a lot to try to help the students, but it was a for-profit college, and it was a really expensive degree. But, oh, goodness, if he had had, you know, you all, then, oh.
2: that's a great story.
0: Yeah, I think,
2: again, even in your situation, right, you're in Oakland now, you grew up and live in L.A., right? You're not thinking about (laughs) anything rural at all, right? If you end up somewhere rural, you're like, why am I here? Please help me escape. But but I think that it's important that we have, you know, champions like yourself, Timothy, that are, that are there, that have both experiences that can provide a lens for people to to have new ideas and to look at different pathways, which is really important. I I think I wanted to see if we can, uh, ask maybe this wrapping question.
0: Yeah, sure, 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 sure. So you talked earlier about how important it is to network so that you can create that executive presence. Well, no, that's actually not what you're talking about. But you talked about creating a network a little bit earlier. So, I was wondering if there are any professional, social, or community-based organizations that help you professionally to get to where you are.
1: So, as I mentioned in the Nightway Network, which I would have loved to have named them as being sort of one that has officially sort of helped my, my career ladder sort of ascension, I had to build my own sort of network because that, that pathway wasn't there. But what I did was, and I still do this. People laugh at me. and They make fun of me. But when I go visit places, I go visit the local United Way. I go see what you're doing there. I get your card. I give you my card. I share what we're doing. Over the course of 14 years, I have built my own sort of network of folks that I reach out to all the time. So where sometimes folks get into a, a job and they don't know who to reach out to, I have built sort of a, a comprehensive list of people, and, and not just in my department in different departments throughout the country where I can call and say, hey, have you experienced this? What did you do here? That's an example. Having uh, pledged one of the best fraternal organizations on earth, 580 Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, has given me access to brothers across the world, of which maybe I would not have met some of these folks if I wasn't part of the organization, that, again, having that that sense of wanting to ask and not be afraid to sort of, hey, brother, such and such, I see that you're in this field, do you have 20 minutes to get on the phone with me and and help answer some questions or whatever and build that network for myself? I've not really joined too many sort of professional associations that's done that for me. And I belong to a few, but they haven't really played that role as more important as some of the fraternal organizations I belong to. And sort of that personal network of just nonprofit professionals that I forged myself. I think LinkedIn is a great tool. You know, it's probably an underutilized tool. I think probably my last for positions. I have used LinkedIn in some form or fashion to get the job, whether it's just to do research on those who are going to be interviewing me to prepare myself and sort of get an idea of sort of their vantage point that they may be asking questions or finding out who may know somebody or who knows somebody who knows somebody. So I've, I take advantage of things of that sort to really give myself every advantage because unfortunately, I know that a lot of our counterparts sometimes come with a lot of these tools and resources and networks sort of built in and baked in. And that's great. And oftentimes some of us do not have that uh, familial sort of a connection that we can sort of give to a, a child or give to another relative. So we have to figure out how am I going to put myself in the best possible position to receive this opportunity that's in front of me. So I think that it's incumbent to use technological tools, but also to get out there and just share business cards. I met my wife that way. She was in line in front of me at a conference. And I, what I saw immediately was this is another young black professional. I need to get her business card because I don't know when she's ever going to be useful to me and I may be useful to her. And I got her card. Found out she went to an HBCU. We had something in common. And it wasn't until years later we we started dating and now we're married. So, you know, you never know where that next uh, success will come from if you put yourself out there and network.
2: Come on, business card dating. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the card. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah.
0: I was just going to say, it sounds like everybody needs to look up their local United Way mm-hmm. and figure out how they can help and introduce themselves and say hello.
1: Indeed. Well, I think. but well, I'm going to look up mine.
0: I know. Shoot. United Way in Oakland. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: I think one thing I wanted to ask before before we get out of here is, I just keep coming back to the fact that I'm staring at a black CEO and if you could with tell... Locks. <laughs> right? with, with locks. Right? With locks. I saw the lock journey online. Those locks is long. We don't have them for a long. 25 years. For that. Talking about, that's dedication. But I'm, I'm thinking, what would you tell, what would you tell your younger self just about where you're headed and what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would advise younger Timothy to not be afraid to step out there and seize opportunities that are sometime presented. There's a lot of opportunities i passed by. And looking back on it, maybe they weren't for me at that time. But who knows where I might have been if I had taken some of those opportunities. And I think because I was introverted, because sometimes I didn't have the confidence to say that I could do that. You know, it amazed me how some folks, you know, in jobs that I've worked at, you know, knew they had no experience. But they'd walk into a job like, yeah, I can do that. Sure. And I, you know, yeah. Surgeon? Why not? You know, with me, I would constantly question myself like, I know I can't really do that. I'm not going to put myself out there and you know be denied. And I would advise myself to really take more of those opportunities, take them. I'm just as smart as they are. Just really uh, convince myself to not doubt myself as much as I did. I would also say that I probably didn't seek out formal mentors until after college. If I could go back, I would do that at a much younger age. You know, mentors are extremely important. None of us are self-made. Even though people say they're self-made, we all rely on somebody. And I think the more opportunities we find those mentors, whether they are mentors who look like us, I actually recommend that you have some mentors who don't look like you, who've been in rooms that you've never been in. That's the only way that you're going to have the experience and and the perspective and not get tunnel vision. But I waited kind of late to sort of build my mentor pool of folks. And they've been great. I have some people who I owe a lot to. But again, you know, I could have been doing that journey a lot sooner if I had prioritized that. Well,
2: I'm, I'm really excited for this episode to drop. Yeah. I know that the listeners, it's going to be dope to have you dropping some nuggets on that.
1: And I really appreciate uh, your time with us today. Oh, thank Super. you, Dr. Theo. Thank you, Dr. Jackie. I'm happy to be here with my, my brother and my soror. So uh, thank you very much for having me on. Awesome. Awesome.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, the way we build social capital is to build self and build others. We are sure you got some notes on your tablet, computer, or even using a pen and paper. Leave us a review, continue the conversation on social media at Black Social Cap, and share the show with someone you know. Until the next episode, stay motivated and rise together.
0: Social Capital.